Well, let's begin this morning in chapter 11, verse 16 to 24, that section, as we begin with prayer. Father, Father, thank you so much for ministering to us and caring for us. Father, when we just sit and think and ponder and contemplate and ruminate and allow what you have done to marinate in us, Father, this is a surpassing work of grace. Father, that in sending the Holy Spirit out into the world as your evangelist, through the preaching of the gospel by mortal men, Father, quite simply and quite accurately, we know that there was no requirement of yours to call any of us into your kingdom other than your eternal desire. Having known us before the foundation of the world, Father, and that is a mystery to us. Father, though there are, we are those who have been foreknown, but yet we could have been those who were never foreknown. So, Father, cause us to think about these things and drink in your grace. So that as we drink in your grace, our pride is being washed away. Creating in us a greater humility, a greater gratefulness, a greater submission, a greater desire to obey. Father, a greater joy, greater peace. Greater availability to the Spirit for the fruit of the Spirit. Father, cause our minds and our predispositions and our thoughts and our desires and our attitudes and our whatevers to be increasingly on you. On who you are and what you have done and the fact that you have included me in this work. Father, so that we can be more heavenly minded and earthly good. For the sake of your name, so that others may know your gracious goodness and mercy and love. Saving those whom you have called into your kingdom through us. Father, what a God you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning we continue with the context of Jesus discussing John the Baptist and the ministry of God in and through John the Baptist and the entire issue of John's immediate success, as you heard last week, 
But then that success, that work of righteousness through John the Baptist, hitting, if you would, the wall of rejection. And you might think, why was John rejected? Why was such a man of God's power rejected? Who are these people who have rejected him? And let me say this. If a man of such power in the spirit was rejected and was opposed and attacked and even killed for his faithfulness to the will of God. Can any of us say that that will not happen also to us? And so Jesus continues to discuss this issue of John's ministry and John's rejection by the leadership of Israel. And so verses 16 to 24, he's addressing the general public here about the ministry of John. And he says, to what shall I compare this generation? And I think it's not only a comparison to this generation, but it's also a comparison to any generation. Because this is not, this reaction to John is not only in that generation, but this is the typical reaction to the people of God in all generations. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say look at him a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. I get the context. He said, this is a fickle generation. You attack John because he didn't eat and drink. And you attack me because I did eat and drink. And so he began to talk to the and denounce the cities that were rejecting. And he says... Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works done in you, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, remember that's Jesus' home base, essentially. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now I want you to think a second. Because one of the things that we are 
hoping to do, being led by the Spirit in this summer jam this summer, is not only to encourage the reading of the Word, but to encourage it in a way that it we allow, and not only allow, but seek and embrace that Word which we have just read to be applied to our hearts and our minds to experience what God is saying and what he is telling us about himself and about us so that in this kind of context of stopping and thinking and meditating and encountering God, we can experience a deeper work, a more maturing work, a more clearing and cleansing work then we can just going through it. Now, what did you notice in these verses? Because let's face it, these are startling, absolutely frightening verses in one way, and in another way, very comforting verses. What is Jesus saying here? You're not only a fickle generation, but then he begins to woe. You know what a woe is? When the Lord of glory says woe to you, that's not good. That is not a word that you want to hear the Holy Spirit say to you. Woe. That's not a horse. That's not that kind of a woe. And what is Jesus saying? He says, if the works of that I have been doing, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. Remember? Remember the works? Not only the works, but the words. Had those works and words been done in Tyre and Sion, and then in Sodom, and you could put Gomorrah because they were almost twin places. If, if, those works had been done in those cities, what? They would have repented. Now, Julio, that tells me that there is a major implication or actual very clear statement here. What does that say? Why were those cities destroyed because they did not repent. Amen? Why did they not repent? Because the mighty work of God was not ministered into those cities. Do do you understand what we're saying here this morning? I don't want to rush through this. Because I think what is extremely important for us to know and to understand, when we look at this world that is coming apart by the, what do you call it, by the, at the seams, thank you. You must know something about sewing, huh, Hannah? Yeah. You see, that's why a man doesn't know. What's a seam? I don't know. It it seems good. It seems bad. That's what a seam is. Unseemly. Sometimes I wear clothes that are unseemly. <laughs> I can, sometimes I can actually get out of the house without Gene seeing. What have you put on and what is that mixture? 
Yeah. What were we talking about? The world is coming apart at the seams. This last week, we saw Steve Scalise and being a target and others, and he was, of course, hit. And it seems as if the gates of control are beginning to open wider. Not that they open, because they've always been open. And the strange people are coming out and being emboldened. How many of you are really confident and secure and at very rest in what's going on in this world today? I talked to a lady at PJ's the other day. I go to PJ's in the morning and do some reading and studying and so on. And one of the ladies there, I've seen her for years and years, and I was chit-chatting with her. And we were commenting about the issue of the world. And she teared up. She's scared to death. She's scared to death that Trump is in office. Talk to someone else. They would have been scared to death that Hillary's in office. They're scared to death. The world in which we live, this city, people are becoming more and more unsettled and afraid. Do you see it? And the danger for the church is that this same unsettlement and fear and uncertainty, anxiety, suspicion is coming in and creeping into the church. Now, you know that. Don't you raise your hands, but there may be several in here that you're really concerned about what's going on in this world. And, and the passage we just read should say something to you about this. Because what Jesus is saying here is that the fate, whether hell or heaven, using the word fate in that kind of a context, not just luck. Luck is of the devil, demonology, demonic. Don't ever use the word luck in any way except to impugn it. And he is saying this. It's all under control. This world, these cities, Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Capernaum, Everything is where I not only want it, but where I have decreed it to be. There is not one person or one event that is outside or apart from or free of the sovereign activity of God. Now, that's a comforting comment, isn't it? But it's also a worrisome comment. Because I say, how can God be this way? Come on, none of you have ever thought about that. 
if you believe in the sovereignty of God as we really see it in the Bible, rather than watering it down because it cannot be because of this and that philosophical, logical, human wisdom. If you believe it the way the Word says it, if you believe it the way the Word demonstrates it, that's a problem. Why? Because you see, in our limited, finite flesh, infused and inundated with rebellion and sin and rejection of God, the flesh is still that way. Amen? If you don't think so, wait until the next time you're tempted sorely in a particular area and you'll find out what your flesh is all about. That's where we live. We live in these fleshly houses. And when the flesh, which knows in relation to God absolutely nothing, and the only thing we know is the minuscule amount that God has allowed us to know and experience, correct? And yet the things that we do know, which he has given us to know, are within the context of the atmosphere lived out in sinful, rebellious bodies. Paul calls it what? Who would deliver me from this body of what? What is I got two or three different answers. Sin, death. Yes, Romans 7. Remember that? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Not Romans 7. Yes, it is Romans 7. And so... We see this, and we look at these, these passages this morning. How can God be this way? You mean to tell me, I want to be very clear and very honest with you. Not that I am not, but sometimes I think we, 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 we hold our honesty back, and we need to make sure we say it a little more. So you mean to tell me, that what's happening over there is under the direct control of God. Yes. Could he stop it? Yes. Does he stop it? No. Why not? Anybody ever think of these things? Am I the only one who's ever contemplated this? Something tragic happens in your life. We just had a tragedy in this church. You know about it, don't you? About a young man dying, right? Peter and Debbie Basil's son. Right? You know about that, Blake. And the question is, where was God? How could God let... What about... What about... What about... And so in all of these questions about how can this be? How can that be? What about that? I don't believe God can be that way. Let's be this kind of people. And... The morning that we went over to Debbie's house, Debbie and Peter's house, a couple of Thursdays ago, I think it was. I say I shared. I I don't like to say I shared. I'm sorry to have to say that, but that's just a fact of the matter. The important thing is the Holy Spirit shared, not who did it. And I said, Debbie, when your whole being is asking, God, you could have stopped it. How many of you believe God could have stopped it? You could have stopped it. 
what's your question? Why? Right, sir? Why? James, right? Why? I said, when you get that question, first of all, there's no answer. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is the answer. And Habakkuk 2, 4 is the answer. This is not in your notes, so I don't know what you're going to do with that. Why didn't he stop it, Annette? Deuteronomy 29, 29 and Habakkuk 2, 4. That's the answer, Jerry. And you say, well, that's no answer. Oh, yes, it is. Because here's what that answer tells me. I said, Debbie, when you have this question cross your mind, I want you to think of the question whose answer swallows up your question and your issues as far as ultimate results are concerned that will begin to ameliorate and get you through these days in a way that you continue to trust and rejoice in the God of your salvation. So the question is not so much why did God not stop Blake, but why did God save Blake sometime before this? Why does the God do this and that and the other thing and not the other? I don't know. Go talk to Ronald Laitano. He's a better theologian than I am. I don't know these things. I don't know. But I do know Deuteronomy 29, 29. And I do know Habakkuk 2, 4. And I do know this. But Ephesians 2, 4. I do know Ephesians 2, 4. I'm sure all of you know what that verse is. That I do know. Now, those of you who don't know what it is, you just need to write it down and look it up later. These, this statement is a horrendous statement about God's sovereignty and purpose. Verse 25 to 28. Jesus has just said, Woe unto these cities, Tyre, Sidon, Capernaum, in which he did these great works. If I had done these works, I'm sorry, in which those cities that are condemned, had I done the works that are done in you, Capernaum, those cities would have repented. Therefore, because... Capernaum saw the works of God and refused to repent. Their judgment is worse than Sidon, Tyre, and Sodom. Now, I don't know how that works. I don't know what... It seems as if there are levels of judgment and condemnation. Did you get that? The judgment is worse. I don't know how that works. But we do know this. That the going forth of the gospel separates people and declares God's sovereign decree 
in the effect. In the effect of rejection and in the effect of reception. And the declaration of the gospel, whether I am teaching it, preaching it, whether I'm sharing it with a friend at coffee, whether I'm just living it, however we are doing this, the response of the gospel has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the sovereign will of God, correct? So verse 25 to 28, at that time Jesus says, listen to these words carefully, listen, don't Pass these words quickly or glibly. Father, I thank you. Did, you. did you get that? Did you get the first three words? I thank you. Did everybody see that? Now let's see what Jesus is thanking, praising God for. What is he giving thanks for? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and have revealed them to little children. So it's not so much that God has made a decree and a decision. But Jesus is now giving thanks to God for this. Can we give thanks to God for what's happening in this world if we truly believe that God's sovereign purpose is being carried out and we are looking at all the devastation here and the rejection? Should we give thanks? Chris, should we give thanks? What does your flesh say? Come on, what does our flesh say, AJ? You've got to be kidding. Are you nuts? You have to be crazy. How can I thank God for these people rejecting the gospel? Jesus is thanking God for hiding from these people who are rejecting the gospel, his work, and thanking God that he is giving it Two little children. Am I wrong in seeing this here? Do all of you see what I'm seeing? I thank you that you have hidden it and that you have revealed it. Bob, do you see that in there? Those both? These are challenging things. Now, these are not things we go out into the world and say, you're condemned. Thank God you're going to hell. I'm so glad you're not coming into the kingdom of God. I don't like you anyway. But you see, it, it, it gets to the heart of our trusting who God is as revealed to us in his word. And here's my struggle. I don't spend days doing this. I don't understand God. Cliff, I don't, I'm sorry, I didn't want to wake you up. I, I don't understand God. I don't understand God. You just, you pick on the one you love, remember? But this time I'm picking on you. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I, can't let him, I can't let that go on, Fred. It's it just, look, Jim, I don't understand God. John, I don't understand God. Harold, I don't understand God. 
Warren? I don't understand God. I don't understand Him. You're not alone, Diana. There's not a person in here who understands God. And the Lord says, you know, know, this, know and understand me. How do we understand Him? The little bit that we know about God, we affirm with our minds and ask God to make it real in our hearts and say to the Lord, I don't get it, I don't understand, but, and I don't even like it. I don't like the will of God sometimes. I don't like the will of God, Andy, sometimes. Do you? But I am making a decision not to create in my mind a God who does not exist, but to thank him and to walk within, within the way I know and to not impugn him, call him into question, but to remind myself Deuteronomy 29 and 29 is where I live. I don't know most things. But the little bit that I do know is this. He saved him. Wesley. And that word, even though it impacts you personally today, is a word that you can cling on to and know that one day when you leave this earth... You are going to get the biggest hug and kiss from that man of yours than you ever did on this side. You see, that's what you understand. So all of your misunderstandings, and she's like us, all of the things you don't understand are really incidental to what you do understand, isn't it? Yeah. All of the things that you don't understand, Tammy or what? incidental to what you do know of God. This is a wrestling that we have, isn't it? This is who God is. And you see, we're not reworking the theology that the Bible gives us clearly into a man-centered, philosophically presented in the wisdom of man, changing God theology. We're not going to do that. And believe me, when I tell you that this theology of the sovereignty of God is not appreciated. I was at a meeting with a bunch of brothers one time. In fact, they were ministers. They don't let me come back anymore, Robert. But I mean, no. So. <clears throat> and the free will of man came up. The man has the choice to reject or receive Christ. In himself, he has that choice and ability. And I said, well, what about the grace of God? And the man said, I, he appreciates the free will of man more than he appreciates the grace of God. You see, it's, it's about man and for man. No, it's about God and for God. So Jesus says, I thank you, Lord of heaven. Verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This was God's will. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see the grace and the sovereign work of God in these verses? Who are these little children to whom God reveals himself? They are the ones to whom God has given childlike faith to believe and to receive. There is a teaching that all of humanity has been given sufficient faith to receive Christ so that when they hear the gospel, it is up to that particular person exercising that amount of faith that he has been given in his natural birth to either say yes or to say no to the offer of the gospel unto salvation. That's what's taught often, right? Right? That's what's taught. Everybody has been given, Sean, (laughs) Shane, whatever your name is, everybody has been given, Gresset. Everybody has the ability, naturally speaking, to say yes and no to Jesus. This is what's taught in many, many churches. And where do they get that? They get it from Romans 12.3. What does Romans 12.3 say? Everybody has a measure of faith. Is that what it says? Anybody turn to Romans 12.3 yet? I don't have my Bible here, so I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't have it in front of me. Everybody's been given a measure of faith. Is that what it says? Let's make sure we see the word for what it says. And so since everybody's been given a measure of faith, that means that everybody has the ability to say yes and no to Jesus. And that would be true if that's the case. Right, Steve? But Jordan does that what it says. Read me that verse. For by the grace given to you uh, to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, read the beginning of the verse. For by the grace given to me, Keep going. I say to everyone among you, not among you. Uh-oh. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, who's among you? Paul is writing to believers and he says, everyone in the church who is saved, every one of God's children, God has given a measure of faith. Then what does Romans 10 say? And I've forgotten whether it's 10, 13 or whatever, and I'm sure Bertus can help me. Faith, blank, by the word of God. Faith what? Comes by the word of God. What does that mean? You don't have it and I don't have it until we are given faith to hear believingly and receive and embrace and walk in the work and will of God for us. Do you see it? Faith must come. If it's residential, it ain't need to become. Is that, did I say that right? If it's residential in me, Danny, I don't need to have it to come to me. If it's residential, I already got it, as they say. I got it. But I don't have it. 
the only people who have faith to believing, remember what Ephesians 2 8 says? For by grace you have say, been saved by what? Faith. And not a, that's not of your own, but it is a gift of God. Faith must come to us. It comes to us by God's gift. It is not residential in us according to our natural birth. It is given to us by God. You read Ezekiel 36, 25, 6, and 7, and you'll see it is the preemptive work of the Holy Spirit in us, changing our hard heart of lack of, well, sorry, of faith in in me and in anything else, a faith that rejects Christ, changing that hard heart into a fleshly heart that says yes to Jesus by faith. And when God, the Holy Spirit, does that spiritual transaction in me, that spiritual surgery in me, then in a moment, I have been given the gift of faith. And with that gift of faith, I will receive Christ. God doesn't do this work in those who will reject him. He only gives it to those whom he has called before the foundation of the world. He doesn't give faith to someone and then says, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. So the question is, does Jesus' work on the cross provide salvation for everyone? No. It does not. Jesus did not come to provide salvation. Jesus came to save his people, not to make it available to his people. Do you see the difference? If I'm making something available to Chris Spencer, who makes the choice whether to receive or reject it? Chris Spencer does. And so the gospel is not something that is provided for all men And I know you're thinking, whosoever will, let him come to me. That's in the next verses. Let's not worry about that today. Jesus' blood saves his people. There's not a single person whom God will save who will not be saved. Amen? Now, that should relax us when we share the gospel. Not relax us into, it doesn't matter now what I do and say, but relax us as to the result of the gospel. The gospel is not made so everyone has an opportunity to receive Christ. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. It is the work of God to save his people, Matthew 1.21. And it is given, not even offered. It is not offered in that sense to us. It is given to us. Do you see that? So, Kenny, Jesus didn't say, Kenny, I want to save you. Is that okay? Jesus births you into the kingdom, as we see in Ezekiel 36, to which you say yes. Is that fair? Who am I to interrogate the Lord of glory as we see in Job? And so foreknown, what does Romans eight twenty nine says? For whom he has foreknown, those 
Those are the ones who he's called. Remember that? And he's justified. I think I'll skip one. And he's glorified. Help me to know which one. Predestined. He predestined. And predestination is God's method of applying his will. Well, what does foreknow mean? Well, what that means is, say some, that God knew that John May would say yes to the gospel. God knows all things. And so because John, God looked down the corridors of time and saw that John would say yes, therefore God saved him. God knew beforehand what John would do. Well, you see, that's not a foreknowledge of works, although it is. It's primarily a foreknowledge of relationship. How do I know that? Because Peter 1.20 talked about Jesus, whom God foreknew. Jesus was foreknown by the Father for all eternity. It is a relationship term which has works in it, but the reason for the works is predicated upon the relationship. And so God has foreknown us from all eternity in the same way that he has foreknown his son, except for the fact that we have not yet been created. But relationally speaking, God has always had a people in his heart and mind and in purpose that he brings about in reality in birthing us physically into this world and then applying that eternal decree of his to be his children forever, applying it when we're born again as a result of that giving us the faith. And we said yes. Why? Because we wanted to, not because we were forced to. That should help us. Does it eliminate all questions from my mind? Anybody now have no questions at all? (laughs) Everything is absolutely clear and no more questions at all, right? There's not a question. No. But what it does do, it begins to anchor me in the sovereign will, control, purpose, keeping power of God. Until the end. You're here this morning. Because God has chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, that you would be saved. And Jesus died on the cross with you and me specifically in that purpose. So when Jesus died, we died as to our Adamic nature. I don't have the drawing that Frank does, but, you know, you've seen this drawing. And when he rose, we rose, having been given a new nature. And then we found out about it when we were saved a month ago, a year ago, 10 years, 20 years ago, whatever. That's when it was made real to me and to you. Amen? As a result of that, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. If I am lowly in heart, remember me. And I will give you what? Rest. Stop the struggling and the fighting and the burdening. Come unto me. Whom is he talking to? Is he talking to the world? He's talking to his people whom God is calling through the... The whole world hears the sound of the gospel. But only those who are being saved hear it in a saving way, not in, hey, what's that noise? 
on the road to Damascus, the light shone and a voice spoke and Paul fell to the ground. By the way, it does not say he was knocked off his horse. It just said he fell to the ground. I don't know if he was on a horse or not. Paul heard and understood these words. Saul, Saul. The other people with him says they heard a noise. You see, they weren't hearing the personal call of God to Saul. Only Saul heard that. That's what we are hearing. The world is hearing. And we're hearing Mary. D. Saber. Better put some guys in here. Uh, let me see if I. Donnie. That's what we're hearing. Gordon, that's what we're hearing. And the world hears, why? Because God has chosen it this way. So if you have any trouble, don't attack me. Take your Bible, and I really mean this, I honestly mean this. If you don't like this, whatever, take your Bible and start in Genesis 1-1, tear that page out. Go to the next page and tear that page out. And keep going all the way through to the end of Revelation 22 and burn the whole lot. But if you don't like it, say to the Lord, I trust you. I do believe it as best I can that you've given it to me. And I'm just asking you to more and more settle my heart so that I can walk in the good of your sovereign grace. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. That Sabbath rest. Adam being created to live in these rests, the seventh day of God's continual fellowship. Therefore, the Sabbaths were given, remember, weekly, in order to remind man that you are my people and that you are to rest in my sovereign work under my care and be obedient to me in that context. And when Jesus rises from the dead, now we are living in the rest of of God. We are living in the eternal day of God's rest, aren't we? For this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice in it. So we're no longer looking for particular days or seasons. We have him who is the day spring from on high. We are living in him. We have been called into his rest and now we're walking in it. Don't let this world out there, your own struggles, cause you to tremble and fear. Remind yourselves, God has done the work of saving us, securing us, protecting us, and keeping us all the way to the end. Why? Because he has chosen to do so. Not on the basis of something in and out about us, but on the basis of his choice eternally, which I don't understand, but for which I give thanks. Amen? See you next week.